such a gift to worship with you and to join the church around the world in lifting up the name of Jesus. How many of you woke up before 6 a.m. today? Just like it just, you were, you were just up. Like how did this happen? For the first time, you did not need an alarm. You were just up. Let's see how long that lasts, right? But uh, I'm so glad you are here with us. For those of you joining online, my name is Rich. I'm the lead pastor here at New Life. Whether you're joining from Facebook, from newlife.nyc, from YouTube, just so glad that you are with us. And we are being joined by the New Life East congregation in Long Island. Let's give it up for our New Life East New Lifers. Such a gift to have, uh, to worship with you uh, in this way and hope to see you in uh, a few weeks over there in Long Island. Um, We've been in a series of teachings uh, focused on life beneath the surface. And uh, we're really talking about having a strong spirituality uh, that, that, does, that does not deny our humanity. What does it mean to integrate our humanity with our spirituality? And uh, we're just so glad that you're here to um, uh, step into the next phase of this series. And at the end of our service, I'll be downstairs in the lobby. Just want to connect with those of you who are new. Uh, before you head out, please make sure that you make your way to me. But today, next week, I'm going to close the series. Uh, focused on a really important area of formation, but uh, we have a really special guest today that I'm so excited. He was such a blessing to us in our first service, and uh, I'm just so excited for you to hear him uh, today. We have Pastor uh, Aaron Stern with us. Aaron is the pastor of Mill City Church, a wonderful church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Uh, He planted that church a number of years ago, and it's really a a wonderful church in that part of the world. I was actually there a few weeks ago preaching uh, at his community and was was so blessed by uh, their witness to Jesus. And um, he's married to Jossie, who is a wonderful gift and who's with us as well. And Rosie and I are just so grateful for your friendship and the ways that you are serving the body of Christ in really wonderful ways. Uh, Aaron, beyond just being a pastor uh, in Colorado, uh, for me is uh, one of my dearest friends. Uh, five years ago, I uh, started meeting with him and two other pastor friends the first Wednesday of each month for 90 minutes uh, to just connect uh, with our lives and to share what's going on as pastors, uh, to share uh, the struggles, the anxieties, what we're learning, to help uh, make decisions as we're discerning God's will. And so more than just a colleague, more than just a fellow pastor, Aaron has been a dear, dear brother to me. And he's preached in many places around this country and around the world. But get this, this is the first time that he's preaching in New York City. And so... For those of you who've been at New Life for a long time, when we get a special guest here and I invite them and I say, give it up for so-and-so, we just don't go a little pitter-patter. Just, oh, I'm glad you're here from Colorado. Uh, We give them the biggest ovation we possibly can. And so, can you give a Queens Boulevard welcome to Pastor Aaron Stern? Thank you so much. It is such a gift to be here and uh, so grateful to be in New York City. It is an amazing city. And, uh, and it is a gift to be at New Life Fellowship and to be connected to uh, Long Island. So what a gift. And I love your pastor. 
Uh, you have a gift in a pastor and Rich. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jossie and I are so grateful for him and Rosie, and they are wonderful and dear friends. And it is a, uh, a privilege to uh, know him and to, for us to, to uh, share life and share burdens and be with one another. So I consider it just a, a special privilege and an honor and a gift to be here with all of you uh, this morning. Um, uh, my wife, Jossie, is here, but I'd also love to take a moment and introduce the rest of our family. Uh, I've got a picture here. Uh, that is coming very soon. There you go. And, and this is uh, Jossie and I, and we have four boys. <laughs> that clap is for Jossie. <laughs> and and uh, we have four boys. They are Parker, Cohen, Brooks, and Smith, and Associates. It's a law firm. And, and uh, Parker is in college. He's 21. Uh, and Cohen is in college. He's 19. Uh, Brooks is a junior in high school. He's 17. And then Smith is a freshman in high school. He is 14. Uh, which really what this means is that Jossie's been living in a frat house for a couple of decades, uh, raising five boys. I am privileged to come into this series, Life Beneath the Surface. And um, I get to talk on a subject uh, that a lot of people don't like to talk about, uh, but I am grateful that I get to talk about it because of the transformative effect it has had on my life and has happen had in our lives together and the ways that it does form us and is part of our formation in the way of Jesus. And so uh, as we begin here today, I'd like to begin with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your goodness. We thank you for who you are. We thank you as we study your scriptures today that you would give us eyes to see Jesus. Would you give us ears to hear your voice, your leadership, your guidance? And would you help us to open our hearts towards you, to be willing to receive and willing to open them and give them to you? We pray that this would happen by the power of your spirit. This we pray in the transforming name of Jesus, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. Our text that we'll start with here today is found in the book of Job. If you're unfamiliar with the scripture, it uh, looks like the book of Job, found uh, in, uh, in the middle of your Bible. And we're going to start in verse 13, where it says, One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby, and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Now, that's, a, that's bad news. Verse 16, while he was still speaking, oops, we jumped ahead there. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven, the heavens, and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. So he hasn't even had the moment to process, and he's got bad news on top of bad news. Verse 17. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. Verse 18. Verse 18. 
While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Now, this is a bad day. We have bad news upon bad news. We have, we have loss of, of livestock, which would have been part of his livelihood. We have loss of servants. We have loss of, of his, his oldest son's house. We have, and then the loss of his kids. This is, this is, a, this is a tough, and have you ever had a day like that? The day like where you find out about the sudden death of a friend or the death of a parent. Or maybe abuse happens. Or maybe it's some sort of financial ruin or it's a, a diagnosis. Or maybe it's a sickness or, or it's some sort of injustice near you or around you. Or maybe, maybe it has to do with a son or a daughter a prodigal has wandered away. It's the, the kind of this cannot be happening kind of moment. I can't believe this is happening to me. It's the, the loss and the trouble that doesn't make sense. The kind that seems to almost swallow you whole. That shatters you and shakes you to the core. In 2008, my wife Jossie and I had a a day like this. We had three boys at the time, and Jossie was pregnant, and at five months, we found out that we were having a little girl. And we were so excited about this girl. She was going to be the most well-protected girl in Colorado. <laughs> three older brothers and a big, huge, strong dad. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> and and I, I was, we were excited to have this little princess in our house. And I, 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 as a pastor, I have the privilege of officiating weddings. And, and I find that one of the most holy, sacred, beautiful moments is when the dad brings and escorts the, the daughter down the aisle and gives her away. And I thought, I look forward to that moment. Look forward to that day. You know, on that beautifully prearranged wedding day. We've, And, and we give her away and beautiful dance with my daughter. At eight months pregnant, I was in an appointment and Jossie calls me. And I was in the middle of the appointment, so I sent it to voicemail. She calls again. I sent it to voicemail. She calls a third time. I pick it up. And with tears streaming down her face, she says, hey, the doctors are, she had gone into her for a regular visit. And she said, the doctors are saying there's something wrong. We need to go to Children's Hospital. We lived in Colorado Springs at the time. We needed to drive an hour to Children's Hospital in Denver. And, and she said, we, if you, you need to come home right, right now so we can leave immediately. We did that. We were in Children's Hospital for 24 hours. During that time, they were taking tests. And, and 24 hours later, we walked out of the hospital with a sheet of paper with a list of things on the front and the back of all the possibilities. They said they'd get back to us in a few days with the results of the test all of them fatal except for two. And those two, they said if she's delivered, that the likelihood of her living or living without complications is extremely low. 
So we believe in a God who can save and can heal, and so we started to pray and invited friends to pray with us, and, and for two weeks, believing God for a miracle. And two weeks to the day that we found ourselves in Children's Hospital, Jossie said to me one morning, I, I, I don't feel her moving. We went to the hospital and it was confirmed within a short amount of time that she didn't have a heartbeat. And then we found ourselves in a hospital room and Jossie delivered a stillborn baby little girl. It was disorienting, it was crushing. And within a week and a half, I found myself standing in a cemetery putting a small coffin about this big into the ground. And I remember standing next to this hole in the ground thinking, God, I was so looking forward to giving my daughter away. I just never thought it would be this soon. And we found ourselves swirling in pain and loss and grief. And in those moments, in the disorientation, we can respond in so many different ways. Sometimes we can become cynical. Or maybe if you read on in the book of Job, you'll find his wife says, you should curse God. Or maybe we find ourselves unable to handle it in some form or another, so we numb ourselves and we run to one more glass of alcohol or maybe a more. Or maybe we find ourselves just wanting to escape, and so we, we binge on Netflix or something to somehow pull us away, distract us. Maybe we just try to avoid it because we want to be spiritual, so we just say, well, I'm, just, I'm blessed, I'm victorious, and so I'm okay. I said, I'm a pastor. Why is this happening to me? Essentially, embracing a level of Moralistic therapeutic deism, if you're familiar with that term. The idea is that, that we want to be moralistic. If I do the right thing, God will help me feel good. And he's kind of distant, though. Which means that what we do is like we, we would say, I've been good, but I'm not feeling good here, God. So why aren't you holding up your end of the bargain? But Jesus says something different about this world. In John chapter 16, as he's preparing to leave and, and wanting to get his disciples ready, he says, in this world, you will have trouble. Now, we love the promises of the Bible, but this is a promise of the Bible. I have never seen this over somebody's fireplace mantle. <laughs> in this world, you will have trouble, Jesus. But it's a promise. It's going to happen. We're, and maybe I don't know where you find yourself. Maybe you find yourself in it. I live in Colorado, and uh, I, we, like to, we like to scare our visitors, and so we, we take our visitors on, on hikes, and we take our visitors on whitewater rafting trips. And, and, and so you get into the, to the big raft, and you're going down the river, and, and you've got your life jacket on, and, and at first, you might just kind of go like this a little bit, and you're like, oh, this is, I can, I can handle this. Like, what's the big deal? And then you usually come up around a curve, and as you're coming to that curve, you can hear, <laughs> and you come around that curve, and then you say, oh, now I see why it's called whitewater rafting. 
because there's white water and it's bumpy and there's rocks and, and, and all of a sudden the, the, the intensity goes up. And maybe you find yourself in the like, I can, this is pretty good. Or maybe you're right in the middle of that white water. Or maybe you've just come out on the other side somehow like a, a little, a little, a little intense. Wherever it is, in many ways, that is life for us. We're somewhere in the middle of the reality of the world. So how do we respond? Well, Job gives us a helpful some helpful direction he says in this next verse after receiving bad news after bad news after bad news it says at this job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground in worship he tore his robe shaved his head these were actions of grief and lament and mourning and weeping an expression of protest an expression of living into and and saying no the American culture and many cultures around the world see grieving or crying as a sign of weakness. Maybe, maybe you've heard this or maybe, maybe you've said this, big boys don't cry. Or maybe, maybe you've said, oh, I'm so sorry when you start crying. Or maybe you, you've ever heard somebody maybe get up to talk or, or share something and, and they say, I told myself I wasn't going to cry. Now, the problem with that and those phrases and those ideas is it's not biblical. We can read all throughout the Scripture, and especially the Psalms, give us permission and language for our grief. Crying out, lamenting, expressing mourning and, and sadness. And not only are we given permission by the Psalms, it's also modeled in Jesus even prophesied about him in Isaiah chapter 53, where it says he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Which means that if this is true about Jesus, he wept for Jerusalem, he wept for Lazarus. What this means is that real men do cry. And Jesus actually encourages it in his Sermon on the Mount as he expresses and, and describes what it looks like to participate in the kingdom when he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are happy. Happy are the sad. What? Jesus, have you lost your mind? But there's something about entering and engaging with the kingdom when we engage with the humanity of loss and pain and grief. In this particular beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. This word comforted is made up of actually two words, with and strength. And the word, blessed for they will be comforted, the verb is parakaletos, which maybe if you're familiar with a little bit of Greek or been around church for a little while, maybe you recognize it as the, in the noun form, which is the paraclete, which is the Holy Spirit. So blessed are those who mourn, for they will the Holy Spirit will be with them and give them strength. We receive something in the midst of our grief. We receive something from God that we cannot receive if we don't. The Scripture says in the Psalms that God is near to the brokenhearted. There is a nearness of God that we experience in the grief and the sadness and the brokenhearted 
places of life. There's something interesting about those first several months when after we lost our little girl. It was an awful experience, but there's a little bit of something about that season that I miss. And it was the nearness of God. We find nearness, the nearness of God and maybe the still and the quiet. We also find the nearness of God and the strength of the Holy Spirit in the people around us. It says in Romans chapter 12 that we are to mourn with those who mourn. Jossie and I learned so much about what it looks like for, for people to come alongside in, in the midst of grief. We had so many friends that would sometimes say the, the worst things, but others who would end up just coming and being and sitting with. It says mourn with those who mourn. It doesn't, fix, it doesn't say fix those who mourn. Give all the answers to those who mourn. Give the theological underpinnings of God good, God's goodness in the midst of those who mourn. Mourn with those who mourn, which has been so helpful for my wife Jossie and I as we've raised these four boys. They regularly are wrestling or something, and somebody gets hit and hurt or a knee into a head or, you know, whatever, and, and, and that's a regular base. So we heard Smith, our youngest, crying one time when that happened, and, and I went over to him to check and see if there was blood and if he was okay, and there was, he was he was okay and there was no blood. And so I started to talk about forgiveness because he was so mad at his brother and I caught myself and I was reminded of Romans 12, mourn with those who mourn. And I was trying to move, I was moving on, but I think God meets us exactly where we are in our grief. And I just sat with him. It's okay. I'm here with you. Now, sometimes we don't grieve because we, we think, well, I don't have as bad as as you, I haven't lost a child, or I haven't done this, or this hasn't happened, but, but God doesn't ask us to compare our grief. He asks us to acknowledge our pain. And your pain might be, might be that, that you're single and you thought, I, I thought I'd be married by now. I thought we'd have kids by now. Uh, maybe it was a miscarriage, or maybe you didn't get the promotion, or, or maybe your good friend moved away. Whatever the case might be, when you find that place of pain, we, we are encouraged to move towards it. We're encouraged to enter it. Some of you might feel like, I I'm actually scared of my grief. I, I don't know what will happen if I actually go there. Like, I is there a bottom to that? And, and I might get stuck down there, and, and that, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what that's going to, will it end? Grief will not kill you. But suppressed grief will deaden something inside of you. Have you ever seen the movie Inside Out? It's a beautiful movie that seems like it was made for kids, but it wasn't. <laughs> but it's this, it, it, it pictures the emotional headquarters of this little girl who's moved from Minnesota to San Francisco. And so she's left her close friends and now is in this new city and, and is trying to, and so she misses her old friends, but inside, in this headquarters, their tr sadness is kind of emerging in a greater way after, after she's had this happy childhood. And so they're trying to get rid of sadness. Like, no, 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 you stay away. We need to have our little girl have such a great time and we're a new city, let's just focus on the positive. And everything on the inside starts to fall apart. And the idea being that both sadness and joy can reside in the same space. That we can be grateful for what we do have and also grieving over what we've lost. That there can be joy and sadness in the same space, moving on parallel tracks. 
And actually, the depth of sadness that we're willing to go will determine the heights of joy that we're able to experience. So we can either live in this kind of margin, or if we're willing to go here, the joy will also go to there. I was talking to a counselor at one time, and he said that as people would come to his office, he has found over time, he said, 80% of the people who come in and present a particular issue, I lead them towards grief. And they grieve the things that are, have lost, that they've repressed and avoided, and 80% of them end up walking out of the office. They never end up talking about or working through the thing that they've, they can't, they're presenting issue because grieving it resolved the issue. The issue in some ways was a symptom of the repression of grief, and they needed to go to the place of pain. As followers of Jesus, we are encouraged to grieve. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, in, the, in Thessalonica, they had asked Paul some questions, and he's writing letters and answering some of their questions. In this particular portion, he, they've been asking him something about what happens to those who have died. And his response is, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Now notice what he's saying here. He's not saying we don't grieve. No, 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 they're dead. Don't worry about it. Don't grieve. No, he says we just, we grieve. We just grieve differently. We grieve, so wail and cry and write it out and scream, and maybe you need to go to the gym and you need to punch it out on the punching bag, but like let it out, engage it. He's just saying, oh, we grieve. We just grieve differently. Because our grief is shot through with hope. Our grief is shot through with hope. And he goes on in the next verse and he says, why? For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. That's why we grieve differently. Not because we're tougher. Not because we're less human. Not because somehow we have Teflon skin. Not because it doesn't hurt as much. But because Jesus died and rose from the dead. That's why. Because of Jesus rising from the dead, death and loss do not have the last word. See, I, because of Jesus and his resurrection, when he returns and he makes all things new, I will dance with my daughter in flesh and blood. I'm going to dance with my daughter in the new heaven and the new earth. Oh, I'm still sad. It's still hurts, but I'm going to dance with my daughter. What God did for Jesus on Easter, which was give him a resurrection body, he will one day do for the whole world, N.T. Wright says. Frederick Beekner, another theologian, says because of the resurrection, the worst thing is never the last thing. So we grieve, so let it out, engage it. But you know what rises out of that? Because we're followers of Jesus and he rose from the dead. Hope, he is our living hope. And it says that Job wept, tore his clothes, shaved his head. But it also says in Job chapter one, verse 20, then he fell to the ground in worship. The book of Job is kind of famous for his questions. Him and his friends, arguing and talking and asking and what's going on. 
And there is a place for that. There is a place for questions. There's a place for trying to figure it out. There's a, there's a place for, for trying to find some answers. But he weeps and he worships before he questions. See, what I love about this is that worshiping does not require that we understand or approve what God has allowed into our lives. It simply requires a heart that desires to trust God. And this is what I found even through working through this loss and other losses in our lives is that we can't think our way through everything, but we can worship our way through anything. Through it all, through the highest highs and the lowest lows, through the most difficult and excruciating of pain. Job, the next verse, says, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. That's his response. Not when you have all the answers, then I'll praise you. Not when God's handling of these things makes sense, then I'll praise. Not when I feel okay or it doesn't hurt anymore. Not if I pray hard enough, then I'll praise you. No, no, no. Before I've got any of those things, I praise you. Now, if you read on in Job chapter 2, it gets worse. It gets worse. He ends up with sores on his head, from, sores from his top of his head to the toes of his feet. I mean, now his health is gone, and, and his wife turns on him. She's like, why don't you curse God? Now he's got marital conflict. Things are going from bad to worse. I was sitting in a Starbucks uh, several weeks after loss of our little girl, and I was just journaling, trying to express and pull the, the thoughts and the sadness out. And I had this just little small voice from God in this moment, and he said, am I enough for you? It, it shook me. It arrested me. I paused. And now, I know the right answer. I know the, the Bible answer. I know the Sunday school answer. Yes, Jesus is enough for me. But I, I, I didn't want to just give the Sunday school answer, and I don't think God was asking for the Sunday school answer. He was asking for the, like, the real, I've settled this answer. And see, at this moment, we had just lost our little girl, but that was on the heels of having lost a couple of uh, people in our college ministry that was on the heels of having lost our pastor to a scandal that was on the heels of losing another friend overseas. The losses were piling up. And in grief, life feels so fragile because somebody maybe is gone or something happens or changes in an instant and you start to experience and, and encounter the fragility of life. C.S. Lewis said, no one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. Because you're like, if I lost her, I could lose one of my boys. I could lose my wife. I could lose, and, and, and all the things that you have that you, that you think are certain all of a sudden become so uncertain and you realize they could be gone too. And so I, I sensed that the question God was asking me in that moment was, am I enough for you even if you were to lose more? Even if you're 
worst, next worst day happened. Am I enough for you? I found myself sitting in the Starbucks. I had tears coming down my face. You know, nothing to see over here. <laughs> Drink a latte. And I took some time and I just started working it through. God, I know what I want to answer. I know what the right answer is. And after some time praying and working through it, I came to the place. I said, God, no matter what happens, you're enough for me. You are enough. No matter what happens. See, because here's the, the scary thing. God doesn't promise that nothing else is going to be lost. Nothing else is going to happen. But he does promise. Psalm 23, even though we walk through the darkest valley, we will not fear. Why? Because he is with us. He's with us. And basically the question is, is that enough? Is his presence enough? So I would love to be able to end this message with a ribbon and bow. So here's the answer. It's going to tie all this up and tidy up the loss and the pain and the difficulty. I wish that I had a ribbon and a bow, but I don't have a ribbon and a bow for you, but I do have an anchor. And his name is Jesus. I wish that this was a message about all the theological answers to loss and pain, but it's not. Instead, it's a message about an overcoming king. Because he says, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. That's where we live. We live in the reality of the in-between. And so we grieve because we're humans. But we grieve shot through with hope because we believe in a God who rose from the dead. So I want to close this in prayer, but as we do, I want to take about maybe 30 seconds. I know one of the goals of this series is to be able to name the things going on in our hearts. So would you for about 30 seconds here, I'm just going to give you a moment of silence and maybe name the, the grief, the loss, the pain that maybe has not been unearthed for a long time, that maybe has been avoided or, or you've tried not to acknowledge it or, you know, if I, if I, time will make it go away. Time will heal when in fact time doesn't heal, Jesus does. So will you open your heart? Will you open your life? Will you open the pain? Will you name the things that are the griefs and the losses, the sadness, the hurts? Will you name them? Father, we come before you offering all of the pieces of our lives. The pieces that maybe we 
wish weren't part of our story, the broken pieces, we offer them to you. Trusting that out of brokenness comes beauty. Trusting that whether it be in this life or the life to come, that you redeem and you restore. And so, God, as we name, maybe some of us in this room, some in Long Island, maybe for the first time, naming, acknowledging, engaging, loss, grief, sadness, pain. Maybe for some of us it's revisiting something that we thought was kind of done. That we somehow you want to, you have more to do. Because you want to heal and redeem and restore. Bring new life out of dead places. We offer to you the healer. The one who grieves with us. The one who encourages us and comforts us. And Holy Spirit, I pray that we would receive your comfort because as it says in the scriptures, the comfort we receive, we are then able to pass along to others. So would you heal us, not just for our own selves, but for the comforting and the healing of others around us? Holy Spirit, we welcome you. Jesus, we need you. And we thank you for the permission we see in the scriptures. And we also, I also pray for the courage by the power of the Holy Spirit to go to those places, to engage, to allow your Holy Spirit to do his healing and transformative work in each one of us. This we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Let's all stand together. This is a wonderful message, and I don't know if there's a better way to transition from this message into the next time of worship than by going uh, to the table to receive the bread and the cup. The story of Jesus is one that beauty emerges out of profound brokenness. When we come to the Lord's table, we are reminded of a God who suffers on our behalf. A God who, before he goes to the cross, grieves. A man of sorrow. And reminded that the story of Jesus somehow integrates brokenness and grief and sadness into the larger picture of salvation. The larger picture of redemption. And so as the people of God, when grief comes our way, maybe you have been cynical. Maybe you have been turning your back. Maybe today is the first time in a while that you've been back at church and you're ready to re-encounter God in a new way. And wherever you find yourself on the journey, we come to the table of communion to be reminded of a God who knows how to take our brokenness, our suffering, our loss, our grief, our sadness and knows how to make great beauty come out of that in ways that don't make sense to the human mind. And so I want to give us an opportunity to offer our confession before the Lord. If you need elements, feel free to raise your hand and one of our ushers will hand you one. But I want to give us an opportunity
to offer our own confession of sin before God. We come to the table not because of our works, but because of his work. We come to the table not in our performance, but in his great performance. We come not in our righteousness, but in his righteousness. It is the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And so we come to the table not thinking because I have to get things right with God, I have to make it right on my own accord, that's what makes me okay to come to the table. No, no, Jesus has done it for us. And so we come on his behalf. And so let's pray this prayer of confession on the screen together. And we do so with a heart of humility, saying, Lord, thank you for your gracious, suffering love towards us. And so as the people of God, let's pray this out together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you and our neighbor through our own fault, in thought, in word, in deed, in what we have done and what we have left undone. For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us all our offenses and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As the people of God set free through the broken body of Jesus Christ, let's all receive together. same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is a new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns as the people of God forgiven through the poured out blood of Jesus Christ let's all receive together Lord, we thank you for the gift of the bread and the cup, the tangible reminder that you take brokenness and turn it into beauty, the tangible reminder that we can offer to you our entire selves, the tangible reminder that we could submit our grief and our sadness to you, knowing that you are at work in ways that we cannot even understand. And so, Lord, like Job, sometimes the only thing we can do is worship, and one of the ways we worship is in singing. We sing to you words of praise. We sing to you words of worship. We sing to the name of Jesus. We hail the name of Jesus. We trust in you, Jesus, and so we sing to you as a response. Let's sing to our Lord together with everything inside of us. Amen. Amen.